0: This comes to us from almost the beginning of the whole story, Genesis 2. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die.
1: Thank you, David. Well, this is the third uh, of a series that we're doing um, on the title of The Perfection of All Things. And in that first week when we, we... Looked at it, we we looked at the dichotomy between the supposed perfection of all things, and the chaotic way that we often experience our lives. We looked at how perspective makes a difference to the way we see and feel about things. And last week, we looked at how we can experience that perfection in in our own lives if we're able to bypass the ravages of our mind. How our mind creates the experience of chaos. And by stilling ourselves and stilling our minds, we come to a point of peace. I also spoke last week about the idea of a loving God. How that idea is tainted by the impossibility of really being able to understand the nature of our Creator. It's so difficult, you know, we can't really understand that. So to start to talk about a loving God or not is very difficult. And how we'll never really understand and therefore can't make a judgment about what it really means for that Creator to love us. Also, how we have this naive idea that we are at the centre of all things and that we should therefore be the priority of such a creator. We think that God loving us means that our prayers are answered, and that we'll be rescued when in trouble. In reality, we're not the centre of the universe, and the nature of love means that we have to recognise the fact that in keeping the universe in balance, sometimes that loving order will have to ignore our personal wants for the good of the whole. So that the balance of the world, the balance of the universe, isn't necessarily all bound up in our happiness. And a loving universe has to consider the balance of all things. All of this has been within the idea that there is a perfection in all things. And that we're fundamentally in balance with this perfection, even if it doesn't always feel that way, even if it sometimes feels unfair, even if life sometimes feels cruel and unjust. Those thoughts are merely our judgments. And what I've been saying is that deep down, there is a perfection that we are a part of. But that really does beg the question, what about evil? It's one thing to say that nature is perfect, even if it is red in tooth and claw. But how do we account for evil in the world? That seems to be something that we cannot blame God for. Nor can we easily put it down to the perfection of all things. And there's plenty of evidence for it. You know, the word evil is mentioned 613 times in the Bible, most famously in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. And although the Bible meaning of evil includes the idea of sinfulness or wickedness in many cases, it also has a broader meaning that's commonly used. And in that broader meaning, evil refers to those things that are generally thought as being bad or undesirable or, as the dictionary says, causing pain or trouble. And this would include such things as war and disease. We can also see much evidence for it in everyday life, in the cruel and malicious ways that people treat each other, in murder, in the gas chambers, and in any number of acts that people perpetrate. The word itself, evil, the word donate, uh, donates the most comprehensive adjectival expression of disapproval. It donates the most comprehensive adjectival expression of disapproval, dislike or disparagement. And I think that gives us a clue to understanding it. In that in referring to evil we are essentially making a judgment. When you refer to something being evil, you're making a judgment. We're saying that something is bad rather than good. And and for me, that's essentially problematic. In that evil is therefore partly a function of our judgment. And that's something that we know needs to be suspended in order for us to see And be in harmony with the perfection of all things. You know, in order to be in in harmony with everything, we, we do have to suspend our judgments. And it's always interesting to note in that reading when Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat the apple. It was the fruit of the one tree God asked them not to go near. And that was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat it, you will surely die. Their innocence was dependent, Adam and Eve's innocence, or the, uh, you know, in this place, the innocence is dependent upon their ability to make the distinction between good and evil. To look at things as having, they're asked to look at things as having the same character, neither good nor bad, just what's so. And it is so interesting that they're, they're asked not to do that. They're asked not to make a distinction between good and evil. So the first thing that I want to say about the nature of evil it's, is that it is essentially a judgment of behavior and pretty much human behavior. You know, animals are not necessarily considered evil, even if they do terrible things, because There is no intent. So evil is really, I think, as well, a function of will. It's a function of intent. Children are often considered in courts not liable under the law under a certain age because their ability to make decisions is not properly formed. Their will is not properly engaged. So there is something about design and intention involved in the concept of evil. It is considered. It is willful. So there is an intent. But what makes that intent evil rather than anything else? You know, the best definition of evil that I've come across is the privatization of good. The best definition of evil is the privatization of good. When someone or something tries to take a good from somebody else, then an evil is being done. When they use their will to take something that's not given to them naturally by life and they are malicious in the taking, in other words, there is a harm inflicted in the taking of that good. You know, rape is an example where a good is being forcibly taken by someone. It is not being given. The Holocaust is an example of Nazi Germany attempting to take a good for itself and in so destroying all in its path and I like this definition of the privatization of good because it defines evil in terms of good saying that good is the basic raw material of the world and that there are some who will not accept this so instead they feel the need to take it to start their own games with their own rules You know, this is also problematic because, in that by its very nature, trade and barter and business can be said to be doing harm to some by the profit that has been taken from others. So, there are some grey areas. It's not just about doing harm because. Simply by choosing one thing or one person over another, whether that be in love or sport or business, you know, that can be seen as causing some harm or hurt to another. And it just shows, I think, how problematic, when you're looking at the nature of evil, how problematic that is. But supposedly when we see it, we know it. When someone is shot or robbed when people are unjustly oppressed or killed you know that has the smell of evil about it you know newspapers are very quick to pick it up this is you know this evil person who did this crime which i think brings us to whether or not there is such a thing as a latent evil in the universe now listen if you're going to if you disagree with any of this I'm going to give an opportunity for you to come back to me a bit later on. Quite often, you know, I'm the only person that speaks up here, and I say, right, you lot shut up. Well, let's get on with the music, you know. But after this, just so that if you have a thought, hold on to it, because, you know, as long as we don't, I don't think I, I'm not going to bang on forever today. So, so do feel free. There will be a chance after, afterwards, um, after the prayers and afterwards, to come back at me this. So it's the question whether there is a latent force of evil in the universe. That's, that's a big question. A force for bad in a dark side. And that's interesting for a start. You know, the way we equate dark with bad. When in reality they're just they're just different sides of the same coin. You know, left-handed and right-handed as well. Do you know that you know the word sinister comes from the Latin word left, which is literally just means the left, left hand, sinister. You know, dark and light, you know, we make these judgments about things. In reality, dark and light are both the same sides, uh, different sides of the same coin. Look at the yin and yang symbol. The darkness and the light go together perfectly. But beyond that, we're asking as to whether or not there is a malevolent force in the world. You know, is there a devil? Or Lucifer? out there competing with the world of good. And, you know, I'm afraid to say, for me, that just doesn't hold water. You know, rather than evil out there, I see chaos out there. I think that within the perfection of all things, that there is a chaos. You know, the gaping void, the emptiness, the... Immeasurable space, that which is formless and empty in Genesis and covered, and darkness covered the waters of the deep. There is that chaos. And I think that there's a difference between chaos and evil, in that chaos has no intent of maliciousness, it just is. Sometimes I think when people see that force for evil in life, I think what's really happening is that they're imposing an order onto chaos, an order that's not actually there. They're looking at chaos and they, they put an order in it. They, you know, like joining up the dots. They say, look, I can see this, and I can see this, and I can see this, and I can see that. And there is the shape of evil. I can see evil. Where in reality, what they're actually doing is trying to put an order onto something that actually has no order and defining that shape themselves. In other words, it's coming from their judgment. Which is why I think devil worship always ends in tears. Because, you know, they say there's a devil and they identify the devil and they worship him and it's pretty much always him. You know, there are other bits, chaos, but it's pretty much him, the devil, And he will give us power if we worship the devil. That's what they say. So they give up to the thrall of this supposed entity and are torn apart. You know, it always tends to end in tears, you know, devil worship, one level or another. And what happens is they're torn apart because there is no real entity. There is chaos. And what happens is that they then become part of that chaos and that, in a sense, tears them apart. I don't see any evidence for a latent, hidden or secret evil in the universe. Nor do I see evidence for the existence of the devil figure. I see projections from the human mind into chaos so as to impose some sort of order on what is perceived as fundamentally disordered. Which then brings us to let us not be led into temptation but rescue us from evil. What is Jesus talking about in terms of evil here? And I think that evil here is really just wrong thinking. I think it's wrong thinking. It's wrong prioritising. It is the small self exalting itself above the greater self. And therefore, it is fundamentally ignorance. Because the world doesn't work in a certain way. You know, there is a perfection of things, and our job as a human being is to live life more skillfully. Our job as human beings is to work out how to live life more skillfully and how to cooperate with that perfection that is at the centre of all things. If you want to know what your purpose in life is, that's it. It's to work out how to cooperate with the perfection at the centre of the universe. Now, if we, do not, if we don't recognise that perfection, or if we're ignorant of it, then we will try to usurp that purpose of that perfection and replace it with our own agendas. We won't see the perfection, therefore we'll try to impose our own agendas on the world. And those agendas lead us to taking the good that's provided for all for ourselves. And in doing so, we fall into the category of evil. Let us not be led into temptation. Let us not be tempted to impose our own will on the workings of perfection, but rescue us from evil and enable us to escape from the machinations of the minds of others who are ignorant of the great perfection and so try to impose their will on life. So in my view, evil is a function of ignorance. Ignorance of the working of the world that leads to inappropriate goals and priorities and a malicious way of carrying them out. Evil, I think, is the product of the untrained mind. It is not something itself to be feared. It has no more power than any other thought. And the way to combat it is through education. Not the traditional answer to combat evil, education You don't really hear that. Oh, it's all about education, combating evil. But I think it's the only solution that can bring about the desired result. We have to draw out, educare, of people an appropriate understanding of what it is, what it means to live a full life. And in doing so, identify the good that can be experienced through making a contribution that is appropriate to the individual situation. That's the education that's required. So we have two responsibilities, I think, when it comes to evil. First is to not judge. We're not in a position to make judgments about people through their actions. We notice our reactions to them, and our role is to respond with love rather than judgment. And secondly, we have a responsibility to combat evil and wrong thinking through education, through enabling people to have a correct and appropriate understanding of the reality, of the nature of reality, and how to live life more skillfully with that. Now, I know that may sound naive and simplistic when confronted with the problems that are faced by the world, you know, bombing you know, and maiming by states, murder, rape, robbery by individuals, and even the most simplistic problems that we have to deal with, you know, difficult friends uncooperative family members you know we have to deal with all these things but i think really with all of this the key thing is to be able to understand what the principles are involved because if you can understand what the principles are involved then you you've got a chance of actually being appropriate to the situation you know the evil is not a latent force and is not inherently bedded in the cosmos the evil is a product of ignorance and wrong thinking based upon incorrect suppositions about the working of the world, and that it is always effectively combated by education, which includes both understanding and experience, all of which leads us back to the perfection of all things, the, fundable, the fundamental rightness of the foundation of the universe and the goodness at the centre of it. And the order that we can tap into as a way of experiencing all of that. Our role is to see this clearly and to live it in our lives. We combat evil by living that perfection within our own lives and by exemplifying it. And by demonstrating the efficacy of the natural law that's at the centre of the universe. That's it for me. Um, next week we're gonna have a you know, we're gonna have the maple's gonna be up next week, we're gonna have a rite of spring. But the week after that, I'm gonna be talking about how we live our lives, you know, from the position of the perfection of all things. How do we live our lives in that way? Now I'm gonna we're gonna pray now, and, and after we've had a bit more music of the offertory then I'm gonna give you an opportunity just to come back to me on any of the, the, the conversations we've had over the last three weeks. So let's pray. We do open ourselves to that fundamental order in our lives that's seated in our hearts, our connection, the peace that's there through our breath, through the ruach, through the spirit breath. And we pray that we may be able to live from that place rather than to live from the chaos of our minds. And we pray that that peace and that sense of order may be in the hearts and minds of our leaders in the world. That they may be able to break peace and a sense of equity and rightness. And to give the world, the humanity, the best possible chance of living together in that love and in that equity. And we do especially pray for those that don't experience that equity in life. People in war zones being bombed. People captured and tortured. People subject to oppression. We pray that you may pay, place that peace in their hearts to enable them to get through those situations. We pray for people in prisons. Pray for people in hospitals. Pray for people who have no homes, who are hungry, who have nothing to eat. We pray for the sense of injustice that many people feel. Of being unwanted and marginalised. And we do pray for those who are close to us in our community. Pray for Tricia Nichols, for Patricia Hill, Will Welsh, Barbara Orkut, Sandy St. John, Bill Archer, Nathan Morse, Sophie Layton, Casey McClanahan, Bo Topher. Pray for Father Joseph Boyle, who's had to go back into hospital with a blood infection. Pray for the Episcopal Bishop, Bishop Rob, who's announced his retirement is leaving and pray for the search team looking for the new bishop here. Pray for Jasmine Mogadam, for Don Hull, for Anne Bayard and for Mike Bansavage. We just pray that that healing power may be able to go into them, their hearts, their minds, that you'll look after them wherever they are. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.